You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 7 and Mark chapter 8. Matthew 7, Mark 8. Um, if you need a Bible, do we have those Bibles available in the back today? No? No. Okay, so if you need a Bible, look on to someone who has a Bible, or you can turn your phone devices on as long as you don't check the score. We will be fine. And especially if you do check the score, don't call it out. I will, church discipline will happen right here if you call out the score. Um, so Mark chapter 7 verse 13 and Mark chapter, I'm sorry, Matthew 7, verse 13 and Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Uh, Today, as uh, the pastors have mentioned, is our four-year anniversary or birthday or whatever you would like to call it. We're uh, we're still pretty young as a church, and I pray as many of you is that our church would endure four more generations, let alone years in this city. And for that to happen, I think it's wise, especially in the new new year, to, 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 to continually come back to the vision of our church, the vision of our community, and the vision of what it is to follow Jesus. And so from the very beginning of this community, when we first started, before we even started, we had a very uh, kind of, our said vision of the church was really simple, and it was this. Uh, We are a community following Jesus, and that's what we said we were. What what are you guys here to do? Uh, Why are you starting a church? We want to be a community in San Francisco that follows Jesus. Now, I, I admit that 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 is not mind-blowing at all. It's not sexy. It's not even something that makes you want to rally behind it. Like, you want to be a community following Jesus. You're like, yes, I want to get behind that. It's not, that, that doesn't, wasn't, doesn't call that out of us um, at the beginning. But I believe the call of being a community following Jesus is, is as countercultural as it is near impossible without the Spirit of God. Because it is a call for our church to be a community, and that is very difficult, a biblical community, It's difficult because we live in a culture of individualism. No one really moves to San Francisco for community, almost no one. We all have moved here for jobs or careers or school or something, but not community. And it's a call to follow Jesus, not just individually, but corporately. And the entry point to following Jesus, as we're going to learn today, is a self-death, and that's extremely costly. So the vision might sound simple, but as we shall see, it's anything but simple. So what I would like to do over the next few weeks, over the next three weeks, is look at what we're here for, what we're here as a church for, what we want to embody as believers in San Francisco. If you're new this morning and you're exploring Christianity, I can't think of a better series to be a part of as you're asking questions about Jesus, what it is to follow Jesus, and Jesus' people. So over the next few weeks, I want to talk about how we are a community following Jesus. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Let's read verse 13 and 14. This is the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus giving a very difficult sermon on what it is to follow him, what, it, what life looks like under the kingdom of God. And he says this in verse 13. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road or the way that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road, or narrow is the way, that leads to life, and only a few find it. Turn to Mark, chapter 8, 
verse 34. If you um, notice, uh, it might be, there might be a heading over your, your, the text of, of, of this section. It might say something like, the way of the cross or something like that. Look at verse 34. Then he called the crowd, along to, uh, crowd to him along with the disciples, and he said this to the crowd. Whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to be my follower, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can a, anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. That is our very gnarly text this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your, your word and your call. It is a call to life, God. It is a call to peace, but that is, in there is a call of self-death. And would you help us to know what that, what that is? What it, what, God, open our eyes to know um, what it is to follow you, what that means for us right now. That might have meant something in 2004 when we started following you, but what does it mean right now? How do we stay on the narrow road? How do we stay on the path of following Jesus Christ? God, would you help us? Give us grace. We need it. In Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, I, I love a good commercial. I love, I don't, I, I sometimes will YouTube them, old ones, new ones. I love a good commercial. I like watching commercials because they're really a commentary on us. They're a reflection on what we like right now and this point in history, what we're buying, what, how, what sells to us. Advertisers spent a lot of money and time researching who the consumer is and how to get us to want something by tapping into our deepest needs and longings. I saw a, a commercial recently. I actually saw two recently. Well, actually, seen, I've seen many recently, but two that stand out. Um, one, one of them that stands out is this uh, TurboTax commercial about the year of you. And I'm watching this. I didn't, know, I didn't know it was a tax commercial. I'm watching it. It's like, this is not the year of whatever it was. It was the year of you. You did this, and you did that, and you bought a house, and you accomplished this, and you got the job. And I'm like, yes, 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 like the whole time going. And he goes, and, and, this, and so the end of the year is a story about you. And you can tell your story. I'm like, yes. Like, now do your taxes and tell your story. And I'm like, what? <laughs> taxes? And then I was like, yeah, I want to do my own taxes this year, but I'm not. But I, I thought about it. That's how good the commercial was. I'm like, yes, I want to I tell my story by doing my own taxes. But, but I'm not going to. You almost had me, TurboTax, but not really. But I, heard a, I saw another one just recently that made me laugh in its absurd, absurdity. It was a hotel commercial or something or a hotel.com commercial or something like that. And it had this girl, I think it was a cartoon or a graphic image of a girl saying what she loved about every different hotel she stayed at. Oh, I love this about you. And then another hotel. Oh, I love this about you. And I love this about you. And I love this about you. And all these things about how she loves all these different hotels. Basically saying that she didn't want to be loyal to any one of them exclusively. Because there was something she liked about everyone differently. And the announcer comes on and says, finally, a loyalty program that doesn't require you to be loyal. And I was like, wait. And I laughed out loud, like laughed. And I'm like, you're kidding me. You, you're, you're actually changing the meaning of the word loyalty. Like, that's, not a, that's like a cheating program. That's not a loyalty program. 
And then I thought about it and I realized that this is actually what we all really want. All of us want this. If I was to sum up that commercial and pretty much every commercial on television, it is this. You can have it all. You can have it all. Like, I don't want to be loyal to one person. You don't have to be. I don't want to. You don't have to. You can have it all. Every commercial is geared toward this way. This is the world that many of us have grown up in. You can be anything. You can do anything. You can have it all. All of it. I was talking with a friend this week about doing ministry in India. And he was telling me how local pastors, and he's done um, several years of ministry in India, and how local pastors are very suspicious of new converts in India. And so when there would be a conversion when they're out doing ministry and they bring them to a local pastor to get them plugged into a local church, that every local Indian pastor would be very suspicious of new converts. Because Western Christianity is so easy for a Hindu to believe in. There are over 320 million gods in the Hindu religion. And adopting Jesus as one of those gods is no big deal. You come and propose a new God, and like, oh yeah, I'll follow Jesus. I will accept his teachings as well. Like the character in the life of Pi, it's simple to adopt new faiths and new gods. But I wonder if our Western world has not become exactly like that. We might not call them gods. We might not couch it in religion. We call them beliefs. We have many different beliefs, we say. We believe that we can have it all. We believe that we should be happy. We believe in self-expression. We believe we can become anything we want to be. We believe that Jesus is Lord. We believe we can join a loyalty program that rewards disloyalty. And we believe that all of these things go together seamlessly. We believe in all those things simultaneously. But what this way of belief has created in us, and most people that I a lot of, most people that I talk to and counsel with, what, what this has birthed in us or began in us is created us, we, we become a culture of passivity and anxiety. We fear commitment. We worry that by committing, we will reduce our freedom. If I commit to something, it reduces my freedom, and no one can reduce my freedom. That is what this country is built upon, is freedom. You will not limit my freedom. And we fear that true devotion and commitment will cut us off from the countless choices that constantly entice us. If I say yes to this, but what if something better comes along? What if what I was really waiting for, and we can't define what we're really waiting for because none of us really know what we're waiting for. We'll know it when we see it. What if I commit to this and something that I really, really wanted comes along later? And inevitably, anxiety sets in. Like, what if I make the wrong decision? What if I have made the wrong decision? One of my friends calls this cultural exhaustion, an endless sensory experience where we're never fulfilled. And this problem is not just a modern problem. It's a, it's a, it's a pervasive, universal, very human problem. It's what the serpent used to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden. Serpent said, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? Did God really say you can't eat from the tree? And and what was the famous, very infamous reply? Well, God said we couldn't eat from all the trees except that one. And Satan, but you can have it all. You don't have to have any exceptions. Why would you not eat from that tree? 
God must not want you to be happy. God knows that when you eat of it, you'll know everything. Don't you want everything? For the Christian community, being a community following Jesus, being a community that's devoted to Jesus Christ, starts like this. Enter through the narrow gate. Deny yourself and take up your cross. Enter through a narrow gate. The opposite of a narrow gate is a broad way, Jesus says. There is a way of living where you can enter through a narrow gate where your options are limited, and there's this broad way, and many are on that road, and few find this one. And few find this gate. And then Jesus says later in Mark chapter 8, deny yourself and take up your cross. Enter through this gate. The entry point to Christianity is a denial and a narrowing of options. The entry point, the very entry point into Christianity is a denial and a narrowing of options. And in a culture like ours where there are endless options, that is a cross-bearing exercise. That is a death to self and death to options sort of call. And you may be wondering why I chose those two scriptures and put them together. Or you may not be wondering, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to tell you anyway. (laughs) Why those two scriptures together? Well, the first one in Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus teaches what the kingdom of God looks like as it breaks into time and space, into humanity, into San Francisco, into Jerusalem, into Galilee, wherever it is, when the kingdom of God breaks into a place through people, what does the kingdom of God look like? So Jesus is teaching, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And he talks about a gate, and he talks about a road or a way. A gate and a way. So then there's this entry point, which is the gate, he says, which is very narrow and few find it, but then there's a way once you get into that gate. It's not like you get into the gate and once you're in the gate, you're like, oh yeah, okay, so I, I, I made it in the gate so I can do whatever I want now. No, there's a narrow gate and then once you get into that gate, there's actually a narrow road. So you get into the gate and you stay on a very narrow road. Enter through the narrow gate, Jesus says, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. That has both eternal and here and now implications Destruction here and destruction then. And everyone, he says, many people, that's an easy road to find. But small is the gate, the way in, and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Sure, and wrapped up in this are the implications that through the gate is true freedom. Through this gate that is Jesus is true freedom. It's true life. It's true peace. The gate is the way of Jesus, but the gate as the way of Jesus, what it does and what Jesus talks about in the Gospels is it challenges the way you see freedom. You have one definition of freedom and Jesus has another. Jesus' idea of freedom is submitting your entire life under him. And true freedom is living out of the truest part of who you are, your your true self, living that true self in line with him, being a whole person. Jesus challenges the way you see life and the way you see peace. See, the gate of Jesus and the way of Jesus has its own paradigm of what freedom is and what life is and what peace is, and it's called the way of Jesus. Now, I chose the second scripture, Mark chapter 8, and where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. The reason why I chose the second scripture is because it essentially is saying the same thing. Now, 
I'm going to geek out. I'm going to nerd out for a second. And you linguistic people, if there's like one of you in here, are going to freak on this. Okay, You're going to be, oh my gosh, you said that word. Okay, listen. I promise you. Here's a quote from a, a, the, the Anchor Yale Bible Commentary. The verb, let him follow me, is a third person present imperative. Mm. Some of you guys are like, yes. Right? I had you at present. Okay. Whereas, let him deny himself and let him take up is our third person eros imperatives. Can I get an amen? The grammar thus reinforces what is obvious from the context. I don't even have to keep reading. You guys know what's obvious from that context. But I will, just in case you don't know. Here's what's obvious. That let him deny himself and take up his cross refers to the beginning of the journey, whereas and follow me refers to the continuing determination to stick to the chosen path. The Greek language, especially when you study it for New Testament understanding, rises and falls on the tense and the mood of verbs. The tense and mood will tell us the force behind the verb and how often or not often we are to perform that verb. The present tense and the imperative mood makes the verb mean continually, habitually commanded to do this over and over again. The erost tense, imperative mood makes the verb call for a specific, definite, decisive choice. So let me put that together on a slide. Here's what it looks like. Deny yourself and take up your cross is in the eros imperative, meaning when Jesus says this and Mark pens this, it is in the eros imperative, meaning it calls for a specific, definite, decisive choice, which is the gate. Deny yourself take up your cross, go through the gate. It's a moment in time. It's a specific, definite, decisive choice moment. I'm going to follow Jesus. And you walk through the gate. You enter into salvation. The follow me is present imperative, meaning the present imperative means continually, habitually do this command. This is the road. This is the way. So why is all this important? The follower of Jesus is called to go through a narrow gate, called to deny yourself and take up your cross. That is a call for a specific, definite, decisive moment in your life when you become a Christian, when you become a Christ follower. Repentance is involved in this. Communion is involved in this. Baptism is aligned with this. It's a moment in time. But Jesus is not an accessory. He is not something that we add on to our life sometime way back then. Like, oh yeah, I got that that accessory back in 2001 at a high school camp, and I did that. I denied myself. I denied myself in 2001 when I became a Christian, everyone. I'm a Christian. I'm in. I've entered through the gate. I'm in. And then I went to college, and then I moved to San Francisco, and then I joined a church, done. That might have been the gate, but it doesn't end there. There might have been a denial in your life, of your life, and and, and a a decision to follow Jesus somewhere back sometime. It might have been last year, 10 years ago. You might, like in some people's language, you were born a Christian, which is not really a thing, but 
we'll give it to you. You're born in a Christian home. You're raised. Jesus Storybook Bible. All that stuff. Got it. But there was a moment, and you might not remember when it was, when you're like, I'm going to follow Jesus. That is a decisive moment in your life. But it doesn't end there. Now that you've entered through the narrow gate, there's a narrow road. Once you've entered through the narrow gate, there is a narrow road. Once you have denied yourself and taken up your cross, you have to follow Jesus. I have to follow Jesus now along the way. The follower of Jesus is a way of being. It's a way of life. It's where your options narrow and you mature. The follower of Jesus makes decisions based on a different set of rules and values and laws and ethics. The best way that I can illustrate this is by showing you how Mark tells his story. The story of following Jesus along the way. And there's two really quick examples in the next two chapters of Mark. Mark uses the language of the way as a literary device. At the very beginning of Mark, of his gospel, he's telling the story and it's just insane, rapid fire, Jesus changing the world type thing. And then in chapter 8, the whole book takes this narrative turn. Where Jesus is like, I'm going to the cross and there's almost no miracles after chapter 8. There's like two And Jesus is telling his followers, what does it look like to follow Jesus on the way? And so you have this, Mark uses literary device, the way. Jesus is going on the way, and when they were on the way, and on the way, and on the way, they were on the way to the cross. And Jesus says, my followers follow me along the way. And along the way, they become more mature. Along the way, they become more holy. Along the way, they deny themselves over and over again. And as they're going along the way, Jesus is challenging all the assumptions of the broad road. Just like saying that's part of the broad road, that's not part of the narrow road. That's part of the old life, that's part, not part of the new life. He does this over and over again. So if you read Mark, especially the second half of Mark, keep looking for the road or the way, the road or the way. This not only is a literary device because the language of the way is picked up by the early church and it grows to become the label for which the whole gospel of Jesus Christ is like hung on. In Acts, you read, and they were followers of the way. People were persecuting the way. The church was called the way. Now, remember, Mark 8, Mark 8 says, take up your cross and follow me along the way. Now, everybody got that? Turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark 9, one page over, or maybe on the same page, if you have a big Bible. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Look at this. And they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, so they, they, they journey, they're following Jesus along the way. Jesus is telling them, I'm going to die, I'm going to, be denied, I'm going to be betrayed and killed, but I'm going to rise again. And they're like, what are we talking about? We don't understand what you're talking about. But they're in their own little world, we're going to see in a second. And they get to Capernaum, and then Jesus turns around and asks them, hey, what were you guys arguing about on the road? You see that? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. They were on Jesus' road. They're following behind Christ. And along the way, the disciples get into a fight about who is the greatest. 
I'm not making this up. This is a thing. They're fighting. It's actually a conversation. I mean, how awkward would it be if you walked into a staff meeting and we were all fighting about who's the best minister? No, no, I, I, I ministered the most. I was there earlier and I stayed later. I, was, no, I, I prayed for 15 people. Well, I don't care. I preached. Like, what if, what if you walked in and you're like, whoa, you guys are sick. This is what was going on with them. They were arguing about who's the greatest and who will be the greatest and who gets to sit on Jesus' right and who sits on Jesus' left and who's the better follower. Who's the better follower of Jesus? And they're arguing about this. We do this kind of stuff all the time, though. Dietrich Bonhoeffer observed that humanity is in a constant struggle for dominance from which we cannot ourselves escape. And this struggle for dominance in, is in every relationship, and it keeps us going until we settle into acknowledged patterns of control and submission. Every relationship that we're in, we jostle for control and submission, and we try to find our place in them. We keep fighting internally with ourselves and externally with others about who is the most powerful at work or at home, who's the most influential among our friends. Who's the most successful in our families? And who's the better dresser or better looking or smarter or stronger? We, all, we are arguing even in our own heads, who is the greatest? And the reason why we do this is because we want to know who's going to control this relationship and who's going to submit in this relationship. We usually fight to acknowledge this in most every relationship that we have. This is often the source of tension in your own relationship. This is what brings up the tension here with the disciples. One commentator writes, the need to assert or protect ourselves each time we meet someone new says something very important about us. It reveals a fundamental insecurity at the very core of our being. In every relationship, we have this inward need to either assert ourselves in a relationship and show them that we're fun and we're charismatic, and we should be loved by them. We enter into a relationship and we're thinking, you should love me. You love me because when you realize my album collection, and you find my Instagram feed, and you know I, that I do this, and I know all the local foodie places in the city, you're going to love me. Or we try to protect ourselves from fear of them rejecting us, or abandoning us, or betraying us. So we withdraw we keep people at arm's length emotionally, and we never let them in. The disciples here, what their collective insecurity does is it poisons their group of friends. They are literally arguing, fighting about who is the greatest. The irony here is that in this, this episode opens up with Jesus teaching that he's going to die. Guys, I want you, what are you guys fighting about? No, come here. I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm about to, we're going on this road. I'm about to die, and they're going to kill me and betray me. And I'm going to do it, and then three days later I'm going to rise again. And they're fighting about who's going to be the greatest. Jesus speaks of surrendering his life while the disciples are speaking of fulfilling theirs. They're on the same road, but they're on two different ways. They're living their life out of two different ways. And Jesus is what he's doing. He's teaching them. He's going to teach them. That's why he said no one was with them because he was teaching his disciples. He's teaching them what does life on this way look like? If you're going to deny yourself and you're going to follow me, what does life on this road look like? What does it look like to follow me? What does it look like? And then he says this in verse 35. Sitting down, he called the 12 and said, anyone 
who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. If you want to be great, if you want to be first, you be servant, you be last. Now, Jesus does not condemn the disciples' desire to be great. He doesn't say, you guys want to be great? Stop being great. He's like, you guys want to be great? Let me teach you how to be great. He actually uses their desire for greatness and he turns it on its head. Do you really want to be great in God's eyes? Do you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Do you want to be great and have peace at the same time? Do you want to be great and have security at the same time? Not a greatness where you feel as though you fought to climb to the top of the ladder only to defend while you're there. So you can't sleep anymore. You can't, everyone's a threat to you. You try to convince yourself and the rest of the world why you deserve to be at the top. Do you want true greatness? Well, it's a different road. It's a different way. Jesus teaches true greatness is achieved in an upside-down logic of the dominion of God. The person who wants to become the first must make himself or herself last, a servant of all. Basically, Jesus doesn't reject prominence and greatness. He redefines them. And how does he do it? By a great illustration. There happened to be a child around, so he had a great illustration. So he took a little child, so he was somewhere now, as he's sitting, he's sitting with them, where he's like, there's a child there. So he grabs the child, and he puts the child on his lap, and he takes the child in his arms, and he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome just me, but the one who sent me. So what's going on here? Why did Jesus grab a child? In this society, especially being an agrarian society, children were normally regarded as an inconvenience. Now, I think that you might be able to understand what that might feel like, especially in a city like San Francisco. This city... And I hear this from parents all the time, especially when they take their kids out to a restaurant. People look at them like they're an inconvenience. I was just in Portland recently, and there was a billboard I saw of two people getting married, and then they had a pet dog, and it said, end petlessness. And I was like, that's not a thing. Like, petlessness is not, <laughs> that is not what we're trying to end here. I mean, uh, God bless dogs and pets, and, but that's not like, are you a family without a pet? You're a petless family. Like, no. No. In this society, it was probably more pronounced where children were an inconvenience. Children were not contributing members of society, but consumed the same, if not more, resources and attention than everyone else. And they didn't pull their weight either. Children had no power, no status, no rights or few rights. They were essentially seen as a drain on resources until they can grow up and contribute. They cried and whined. They weren't good communicators. They had to be changed and fed. And after that was all done, they could not give back. Now, why would Jesus grab a kid and say, you want to be great? Receive a child. This is where I should say sign up for kids ministry and volunteer. But that's next week. Um, we have a really cool video coming out next week. Anyway, um, Jesus was saying, receive a child because, Jesus wasn't saying, I apologize, he was not saying, receive a child because they're cute, or receive a child because they're cuddly, or their baby head smells so good, and it's a good way to serve your church. Like, that's not what Jesus was saying. 
he was saying, receive a child because doing so is sacrifice and service. That's what having a kid is. You feed them, you change them, you hold them, you protect them, you train them, you pray for them, and you don't expect that kid to look up and say, Mom, Dad, this is totally going to help your career (laughs) and your social life and your finances. By caring for me, you're going to be able to save more money and do more things. Thank you. Like, no one ever expects that of a child. Children are a sacrifice, a beautiful sacrifice of service. There are many Tuesday mornings and Wednesday mornings that I see Pastor Dave Daly come into the office, and his hair is like, and, um, and I look at him, and he's just like, I'm like, hey, all right, what's go- how? He's like, kids are crazy. <laughs> Let's pray. You know, or like it's, he, Jesus, and, and what, what Jesus is saying here is it's sacrificial service to be a parent. It's sacrificial service to, to grab a child, to have a child, to raise a child. It's the primary way in which believers imitate and fulfill the mission of Jesus, though. It's the perfect analogy. Because the way we serve, we don't do it for recognition. You don't raise a child for recognition. You do it because you love that child and you pour into that child and you want them to grow up and just and leave maybe eventually. <laughs> what sacrificial services in the kingdom of God is just like that. It flips upside down the idea of greatness. The idea of greatness in the kingdom of God is serving people that can give you nothing in return and doing it joyfully without hoping that someone will make a document, documentary uh, uh, after you or someone tweeting about you or something like that. It's like doing it and nobody knows. It's becoming least in the kingdom uh, in the kingdom of the world and great in the kingdom of heaven. Greatness in this way is service. It's sacrifice and it's sacrifice without recognition. One more illustration, chapter 10. Jesus says this or Mark says this about Jesus. Chapter 10, verse 17. Turn one more page to the right. Chapter 10, verse 17. It says, as Jesus started on his way. There it is again. They're going along the way. They're walking along this road. Jesus started on his way. A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him and said, good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So they're going on the way and this man runs up and falls on his knees like, what do I do? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now, we, we know the answer. We just read it like two chapters earlier. What Mark is assuming is that you and I know. Like, what is it? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus along the way. That's how you do it. But Jesus engages with them. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. He's getting to his heart here. Is this flattery? What are you doing? No one is good except God alone. Meaning, what he's doing there, he's like, he's calling something out because in a second he's going to challenge him to follow him as God, as Lord, but he won't do it. So he's like, do you really call me good? Do you know the implications of calling me good? Only God alone is good. No, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not, you shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. mother. And then as this, the, uh, Luke calls him the rich young ruler. As the rich young ruler is listening to this list, he's like, boom, done that done that, that, come on, baby, yes, that, 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 and then he stops. He's like, teacher, I've done all these things. I've done every single one of these things since I was a boy. 
Like he's probably excited going, I'm so in. And then Jesus looked at him and loved him. I love the compassion. Because Jesus is looking at him going, one, what I'm about to tell you is going to crush you. And I love you. Two, you have genuinely done these things thinking that these things get you in. And he loves them. One thing you lack, Jesus said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. There are two ways to live. And the broad way could actually look very religious. I'm not talking about the broad way in terms of I get to do what I want to do and I sleep with whoever I want to sleep with and I spend money on it. You can actually be on this broad way and it look very religious. Obey all the right rules, do all the right things and go, I'm in. I'm on the, broad, I'm on, I'm on the narrow way because I, I, I live my life this way. The one man's fatal flaw was that he thought like the rest of his life that eternal life or life with God could be acquired. He was a very wealthy man. He had everything that he wanted he can do. He's probably very educated and smart and he goes, if I want it, I can go out and get it. I want eternal life, I'll go out and get it. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? But life with God cannot be acquired. The way in is not what you get but what you give up. You have to give up everything. The way of Jesus is one of denial and the narrowing of options. The way of Jesus is one of denial and the narrowing of options. There are people that God will call to give up everything and follow him. I, I can't pretend to know everyone's situation in here. But I trust that God's Spirit is ministering to you right now about the implications and the cost of following Jesus. And it's not just this one thing, I denied myself and gave up everything five years ago. It's this continual process of being on the way with Jesus, denying yourself, taking up your cross. And not just intellectual, not just like I learned something new at church. The way implicates a journey, a life, a walk, a way of being with God. I'll close with this quote from a book I read over my break. As ancient Christians understood it, a way suggests a journey of transformation with steps and maturing of soul and community. In contrast, one can embrace a system of belief and never mature except in fine-tuning of doctrines. As many have noted, a system of belief is different than a way of transformation. Most of us rest happy within a system of belief century after century. You might be in here and go, well, I have intellectually agreed with everything the Bible says, but you have not denied yourself and started to live in the way of Jesus. Like you haven't started to take what's here and go, I'm going to start living into this. I'm going I'm to start living this way. Spirit of God, I want you to change the way I, I live. And then enter into a community where, as a community, you're like, let's, let's all follow Jesus together. Let's all follow Jesus together to where the way that we live is different. 
Guys, this is the vision of our church, is to be a community in the city that is constantly calling ourselves to deny ourselves and live in the way of Jesus. And it starts with following. It starts with denying on God. Everything, everything I've tried to acquire and want, I will give it all to you, all of it. And not just in theory, not just like in my heart, but like for real, give it to you. I want it all. I want to sacrifice everything if I can just acquire this, eternal life with God. That is the beginning of discipleship. And that's not just the beginning, that's the road we live. This is challenging. This will be challenging as we wrestle through these implications this year as a church, as we wrestle through the implications of what it is to follow Jesus in our community groups. This is very challenging. But church, this is, this is, the, this is the vision that God has called his church to, a community of people. They go, we are going, we're going to live our lives differently, not for the sake of being different, because the way of Jesus is different. That's why. What I love about this last passage we read is that Jesus looked at him and loved him. He loved him. That is, I think, that I think is one of the most heartbreaking things when you see someone walk away from true love. Like this man said, I'd rather have my stuff than real love. Jesus was offering this man and he knew he was offering him true love, deep love like he's never known. And he walked away. I believe that the Spirit of God is, is going to minister to us and going to call us on our specific things, leave this and follow me, leave this and follow me, leave this and follow me. So I'm going to get out of the way and let God do that. God, I thank you for our time in your word, and I trust the Spirit of the living God would you change us? Would you draw us into community where, where together as a church, where we are moving in the way, we're staying on the road together following you. There's a broad way that leads to destruction, God, and, and we want to choose the narrow way, the way of life and peace. In Jesus' name, amen.